to move this over so I don't kick it over. And after the service, we're going to make sure these are empty um, so that we, they all go home with us. We'll save a couple for people for next week, but you snooze, you lose. Happy Mother's Day. It is a day, I'm sorry, I have to fix my thing here so I don't trip over it. Uh, Mother's Day is a day for me in the life of my ministry that I never know exactly what to do with. In all honesty, I never preach on mothers, motherhood or, or women on Mother's Day. Uh, I, I usually don't. I, I'm not afraid of it, but there are reasons why I, I generally don't. And, and, and I'm telling you that to say that I am going to preach a message on motherhood today. Uh, usually I don't for two reasons. One is that motherhood is not the same to everyone. There are some for whom this day brings great pain, either because of their struggle with uh, unfulfilled desire to experience being a mother and haven't been able to, or for the fact that many haven't had great moms, and these days can be challenging for them. Uh, the other reason why I don't is because this day is, uh, is about significant biblically as, say, Veterans Day or Memorial Day or Fourth of July, which means it's to be celebrated, but it doesn't rise to the point of having any real biblical significance. There is no Mother's Day we find in the Bible. It was actually invented by some retailers in Chicago. Uh, and, uh, but it's worth it, isn't it? The three most significant mothers in my life, uh, two of them are here in this room. Uh, my wife is, I think, um, second only to my own mother in terms of showing me what uh, it looks like to be a good mom. And so I have uh, a mom who loved me, loves me dearly and raised me well. And so I have a picture of good motherhood in my upbringing. I've had a picture of good motherhood in my marriage, and I have a picture of good motherhood in my mother-in-law, and so um, happy Mother's Day to them. Carol, I'm going to pick a flower out of here for you now, so we don't lose them later, and I know what you like, so these are yours right here. <clears throat> she likes yellow flowers, particularly if they were daisies. She would like them even better. So, um, but... Now, this is everything after the butt is what matters. Um, I have really been thinking a lot lately about the biblical significance of women and mothers. And uh, there's been a lot that's been on my heart regarding this. I was just reading something this week that reminded me that in the very first couple of verses of the Bible in Genesis 1, we have this picture of essentially the Holy Spirit, uh, the Hebrew word could be translated brooding, hovering over the earth. And it is a picture essentially of one of the aspects of, of, of parenting or preparing for birth. And then you have all these, these beautiful scenes that we return to. If you want to go read, I mean, it, it's, it's proper and appropriate that we never refer to God as our mother. And that's a whole different message as to why God is an anthropomorphic male. And if that, that's all seminary kind of language, it doesn't matter. But I'm telling you, the fact that we never say God is our mother doesn't mean that God does not deeply express the value of womanhood and motherhood and, and the feminine side of humanity as, the, as part of the fullness of God. 
Go read Isaiah 66 on your own time at the end, particularly of Isaiah 66, when he asks the question, can a a nation be born in a day? And he gives this beautiful picture of Zion giving birth, um, you know, the birth of Zion through this, this, this deep, deep picture of, of, of motherhood. Um, you know, he, he compares himself and his love and care for humanity to a, or for his people to a, 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 a mother hen gathering her, her, her chicks under her wings. Um, you have Paul, I don't understand, I don't know Paul, I mean, I can't wait to sit with Paul in eternity and find out more about his life. There is some debate as to whether Paul was a married man or not, um, um, but he obviously had some sense of deep revelation about motherhood, and particularly childbearing, uh, and I don't know if, well, there were no hospitals during Paul's time, uh, and so I, I suspect the fact uh, that there Maybe he had some firsthand, you know, interaction, maybe just, you know, passing by. In fact, one of the Hebrew root words for a type of prayer we call travail. You know what travail is? Travail, do you you, you know, so if you say, you know, if you say a mealtime prayer, um, you know, What's the, what's the childhood mealtime prayer? Like, God is good, God is great, and we thank Him for this food. That's not travail. Travail is like deep. It's just, it's, just, it's just a scream and a deep, deep burden that comes forth. Well, the Hebrew word, root word for travail is the same word used for giving birth. So there's a sense in which our prayer life is is compared to a woman giving birth. And Paul must have had some deep revelation that he, I don't know how he understands this, but he compares in Romans 8 all creation groaning or travailing for, for the fullness of God to come forth through the Spirit to a, a woman in the pains of childbearing. And then he compares himself in Galatians 4 as a shepherd or as an apostle. He says that he himself is like a woman in the midst of giving birth to a child and he will remain that way until Christ is fully formed in his people. It's a pretty deep, you know, revelation. And so, um, and I, I, I have watched in my ministry in the local church and worldwide the, the contribution of women to the advancement of the gospel. And I will tell you unequivocally, if not for women the church would not be moving forward. I think part of the equation is men have controlled the narrative. I think women have always been active and operative starting on the day of resurrection. Well, way before that, but including the day of resurrection, and we just don't see it all the time. I just read a text thread this morning of two women who I love deeply who are, who are embedded in Lebanon scouting for ministry opportunities and how they are deeply investing in families, Muslim families, during Ramadan to, 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 to just ask the Lord to give them relationship and opportunities for access for the gospel to go forth. I, I, I was reading this week uh, some information about the church in Iran and these women, uh, and, you know, this organization that we work with, FAI, is getting ready to release a second expression of Sheep Among Wolves and the second volume of this, uh, this series will be about women in Iran, the church in Iran, these women who have essentially said to the 
the powers of the air. You can, you can beat our bodies. You can rape us. You can kill us. We will not renounce Jesus. When you hurt us, when you kill us, when you do things to us, he will vindicate us and raise us up. It is the most radical form of feminism I've ever seen for Christ. And so all that being said, turn to Matthew chapter 20. And, and, and just put your finger on verse 20. And I'm going to get at this in just a second. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would open your word, that we might have a, uh, a deeper understanding of the totality of your heart as a good father. We love you, Jesus. You are before any message that goes out, you're after any message I might preach, and I pray that you'd be within it, that you would give us deep revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. Mother's Day is traditionally the day when children uh, give something back to their mothers for all the spit moms produce to wash dirty faces and all the gum they held in their hands and all the noses they wiped and all the bloody knees they made well with, with, with holy kisses. It's the day moms are rewarded for uh, washing sheets in the middle of the night and driving kids to school when they miss the bus and enduring all of those games in the rain. Um, it's a day of appreciation for making your children finish something when they said they couldn't do it. It's a day of, of appreciation for not believing them when they said, I hate you. And it's a day of appreciation for sharing their good times and their bad times. You know, what are moms? What are mothers? Well, uh, mothers are teachers. They're disciplinarians. They're experts at finding stuff. Uh, Some mothers are gardeners and mowers of lawns, and other mothers are nurses and doctors and chefs and counselors and lawyers and soldiers and business persons and chauffeurs and coaches and this and that. Mothers are, are developers of personalities and molders of vocabularies. You don't say that word, young lady. They're shapers of attitudes. Mothers are soft voices that whisper, I love you. And I think that mothers are a deep, deep link to the heart of God. Very often a child's first impression of God's love is a mother. And mothers are all these things and a lot more. Uh, there is a, a lady who's gone to be, she, she's, she's passed away, who used to write a lot about these sorts of things. And she wrote a story, a, a fictional story, from her perspective, that told the story of God in the act of creating mothers. She said that on the day that God created mothers, he'd already worked long overtime, and an angel said to him, Lord, you sure are spending a lot of time on this one. The Lord turned and said, have you read the specs on this model? She's supposed to be completely washable, but not plastic. She is to have 180 moving parts, all of them replaceable. She is to have a kiss that will heal everything from a broken leg to a broken heart. She is to have a lap that will disappear whenever she stands up, and she's to be able to function on black coffee and leftovers alone. She's supposed to have six pairs of hands. Six pairs of hands, said the angel. That's impossible. It's not the pairs of hands that bother me, said the Lord. It's the three pairs of eyes. She's supposed to have... One pair that see through closed doors that, so that whenever she says, what are you kids doing in there? She already knows what they're doing in there. She has another pair in the back of her head to see all the things she's not supposed to see, but she must see. 
And she has one pair right in front that could look a child in the eye who goofed up and communicate love and understanding without even saying a word. Well, that's too much, said the angel. You can't put all that in one model. Why don't you rest a while, God, and resume your creating tomorrow? No, I can't, said the Lord. I'm close to creating something very much like myself. I've already come up with a model that can heal herself when she's sick, can feed a family of six with one pound of hamburger, and who can persuade a nine-year-old to take a shower. Not sure about that last part. (laughs) Then the angel looked at the model of motherhood a little more closely and said, well, she's too soft. Oh, but she's tough, said the Lord. You'd be surprised at how much this mother can do. Can she think, though, asked the angel. Not only can she think, said the Lord, but she can reason and compromise and persuade. Then the angel reached over and touched her her cheek and said, yes, but this one has a leak. He said, I told you that you couldn't put that much into one model. That's not a leak, said the Lord. That's a tear. Well, what's a tear for, asked the angel. Well, it's for joy and for sadness, for sorrow, for disappointment, and for pride. You're a genius, said the angel. And the Lord said, oh, well, I didn't put the tear there. Well, maybe uh, that's all that, uh, with all that in mind, uh, we can better understand the woman that we're about to experience in this passage in Matthew chapter 20 that I know by the name of Mrs. Zebedee. And so let's read this account together. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, him being Jesus, with her sons and bowing or kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, what do you want, child? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? She asks a question of Jesus. Jesus says to the mother, you don't know what you're asking. And then says to the sons, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they, the sons say, we are able Jesus says to them, to James and John, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. I have read this passage countless times, and I typically read it with an attitude of, what a bunch of dopes, (laughs) including the mom. Because, uh, you know, how could you be so close to the Lord and he says so often what he's preparing to do and, and, and just a, you know, a few days they'll see what it means in a very literal way. They'll see a, a, an illustration of, of, of his right and left as he's on the cross. How could they, and, and of course I read with the benefit of knowing the story, um, but I want to give this, this story its due because I think it opens up for us a picture of biblical motherhood Mrs. Zebedee was aware of the teachings of Jesus, undoubtedly, uh, and, and the teachings of Jesus about his kingdom. She was also very aware of the fact that her sons, James and John, were in the inner circle. They were so close to Jesus, they were two-thirds of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. So I think she had reasonable expectation that when the Lord formed his kingdom, 
that they would have positions of responsibility and authority because of their proximity to the Lord. The end of chapter 19 of the book of Matthew forms the basis of her request. I'll flip over and read it to you. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's just said this. The, the, Mrs. Zebedee, the mother of James and John, has heard this teaching on the kingdom. Who is he talking about? These 12 that will sit on thrones. And, and, and so she's certain that when the Lord forms his kingdom that his, her sons will be there. But in the first chapter, the first part of, the ch- of, of chapter 20, Jesus tells a story that must have really disturbed her and freaked her out. He tells this parable about a landowner who went out to find laborers in the morning to do some work, and he hires some, some guys early in the morning and agrees upon a fair's day wages for their work, and these guys start working. Then he goes out a little later in the morning and hires some more because he realizes there's more work to be done. Then about noon, he hires some more, and then about three or you know, in the afternoon, he hires some more, and then at the very end, he hires some more. And at the end of the day, uh, when, it's, when it's time to bring all the workers in, he brings all the workers in, and if you, if you don't know the story the landowner pays all of them the same exact wage. The ones who started and worked all day and the ones who worked just a few minutes get paid the same. And it's this incredible expression of the mercy of God that he, that he and he alone gets to determine how he will reward people. It's not up to us to determine this. But if you're Mrs. Zebedee and your sons have followed the Lord since the beginning of his ministry, you might begin to wonder, will my sons really have positions of authority in the Lord's new kingdom? So when the opportunity presents itself, she comes to Jesus. And Matthew says that she bowed before him because she recognizes that he is king of this kingdom. And she makes this request. When you establish your kingdom, as you just talked about in, you know, a little bit ago, and when you set things up like this landowner, will you establish my sons as those in authority by placing one on your right and one on your left, positions of great authority? We might, we might very appropriately sit around a table and, and, and discuss this passage and criticize Mrs. Zebedee for being so bold. But since it's Mother's Day, I want to think for a few minutes about some of the deep positive insights that I get concerning Mrs. Zebedee just by looking at this passage with a little more context like we just did. We need to recognize that when she came to Jesus, she asks this deep request of Jesus, and Jesus does not give her this request, does he? Does he? But he doesn't deny it either, does he? Does he say no? He just says, you don't know what you're asking. He simply reminded her of the cost of being seated on the right and the left and told her that it was the father's job to determine who will be seated there. And so I want to get at a a few of the things about Mrs. Zebedee that really hit my heart, uh, you know, and particularly on this day. First of all, she came to the Lord asking that her sons might be a part of his kingdom. And I I thought a lot about this. And I cannot come up with what I think is a, a more important task of motherhood than that to seek to ensure that your children are a part of his kingdom. That's right. 
I can't think of something that's more important for you to do as a mother or as a parent than to, to, to essentially express the same sort of burden that you expressed when you had to bear down and birth that child as to go before the Lord and beseech him that your children would be part of his kingdom. I know that, 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 that many mothers pray. Sometimes mothers pray out of necessity. And sometimes they pray because motherhood isn't easy and it's, it can be extremely difficult. James Dobson, the uh, focus on the family guy, tells a story about a time when he came home when his first son, Ryan, was a little baby. <clears throat> it had been a terrible day for his wife and Ryan had been sick and had cried all day. And once during the day as she was changing his diapers, the phone rang. In those days, millennials, your phone was on a cord and, and maybe on a wall, and you had to go to it. It wasn't in your pocket. And when she went to get the phone, she had to do so before she'd fastened up the diaper, and just then Ryan had another attack of his lower intestinal sickness. So she cleans up that mess and puts him into a clean, sweet-smelling diaper and clothes, and then she takes him into the living room and feeds him, and as she's burping him, he throws up all over himself and on her and the couch. And then, and then Dobson writes that when he comes home, this is the quote, when I came home, I could smell the aroma of motherhood everywhere. <laughs> and his wife surely cried out, was all of this in my contract? And so I know that sometimes mothers pray just out of frustration of it all. I know sometimes it's overwhelming. And sometimes in the frustration of trying to teach our children, we realize the difficulties of, of raising them, even the simple things like communication. I can absolutely guarantee you there was a time, hypothetically speaking, of course, in my own home, uh, when I gave one of my children a small taste of responsibility and said something like, watch your, watch your baby brother or sister. Well, I step out of the room for just a second, and I'm only gone for a few moments, hypothetically, when there's a thump and then a baby crying, and when I rush in and find the baby falling from the couch and stretched out on the floor, and, uh, and meanwhile, older, an older child sitting there looking innocent, and I say, hey, I told you to watch your baby sibling, and the child said, I did. I watched the baby fall, and I watched the baby cry. I did exactly what you told me to do. Um, you realize being a parent isn't easy. Sometimes as a parent, you're filled with joy and sometimes you're filled with sadness and sometimes your children make you so stinking proud that you're ready to burst and sometimes you can't find enough tissue to, 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 for the tears. I can understand the feelings of a mother of three children uh, when she was asked a question by somebody, if you had to do all over again, would you still want children? She said, absolutely, just not these. <laughs> Being a parent isn't easy, right? It's difficult. But Mrs. Zebedee gives us a really valuable example. She asked earnestly, she bows before the king and asks that her sons would be part of his kingdom. Do you do the same for your children? We need that same concern Absolutely. 
for our children. In the days of Joshua, it took one generation before they forgot God. It only takes one generation of moms who are unwilling to bow before the Lord and beg him for their children, for our children to go astray. What good is it even if our children are successful in making money and driving nice cars and living in good neighborhoods, but they don't know God? What does it matter if they gain the whole world and forfeit their souls? And I hope it's the heart of every mother and father here this morning. Karen, by the way, asked what would we... Oh, not Karen. Somebody, a person asked, by the way, what could we do for fathers on Father's Day to, to set this up? And, and we decided maybe we're going to put recliners with remotes and chicken wings. Um, Father's Day is an absolute tag-on, right? It has no... I mean, if a father gets forgotten on Father's Day, does he even notice? Um, but I do hope that mothers and fathers here this morning, you know, within your hearts, there's a burden to go to the throne before the Lord and pray for your children to pray that they'll be saved, saved from eternal separation from the Lord and saved for eternal life. That's the place to begin. But, but secondly, Mrs. Zebedee didn't just ask for her children to be a part of his kingdom. She wanted them to be actively involved in the work of his kingdom. She wanted them to actually be engaged. She didn't, she didn't, it wasn't enough for her that they would just be saved. The kingdom of God is full of people who are content to sit back in a chair on Sunday mornings. We don't need any more people. The, the Lord doesn't need more people in the kingdom to occupy comfortable chairs on Sunday mornings. He's got plenty that do that. So Mrs. Zebedee goes before the Lord and asks that her, that her children would be actively engaged. Where does that spirit of serving the Lord begin? It begins at home with parents setting the examples and praying that their sons and daughters might be might be, might be deeply invested in the work of the kingdom of God as teachers and leaders and disciplers, that they might be the ones to go out and find the lost, to see the church continues to do the stuff that Jesus did until Jesus comes. And so Mrs. Zebedee asked this. She asked that her children would be actively involved in the work of his kingdom, and we need to walk in her footsteps and, footsteps and asking the Lord this sort of thing as well. And third. Mrs. Zebedee had pretty big expectations of what she would get for her prayer. When you're working in a kingdom, and you're part of a kingdom, and you look at the way that a kingdom works, and you realize that the position of king is taken, and it's not up for question, there are no higher positions than those on the right and the left of the king himself, and that's what she wanted for her sons. She didn't ask for her children to be doorkeepers. She wanted them on the right and the left hand of Jesus. And we might consider her, and I think I do a lot when I read this, to be pretty brash and presumptuous. But I tell you, man, I admire her boldness. I admire the heart of a mother who would go before the Lord and say, man, I want the best for my kids. And, and, and I think too often, maybe because of frustration or because of the, 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 the difficulty in getting through... Um, Childhood, I know that same guy, James Dobson, gives advice to parents of teenagers. He says, the best two words of advice I can give you for the teenage years is survive them. Just, get, just survive them. Just hang in there with your kids. And he's not joking. He's serious. And I think because we are so worn out by that, that it's too often we're willing to settle for mediocrity. My kids can just be in the church. 
And if they can just barely make it through the door and be saved, you know, with everything being burned away like wood, hay, and stubble, I'll just take that. And for too long, we're content to sit back and just let it happen. And it's time, I think, for moms and dads to take our positions before the Lord and to beseech the Lord for authority for our children. The right and left hand to become leaders, to mold them and fashion them that the, 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 the true outreaching arm of the church you know, mobilizing to the ends of the earth to make sure the message of Christ goes out into all the world. This is the, this is the deep burden for us as moms and dads. It's time for us as moms and dads to strive for excellence, to reach for the very best there is for our kids. And the Lord calls us to be his disciples and to be effective laborers, you know, in his kingdom. The right hand and the left hand suggest proximity to the king. And I think that at the heart of her request is not so much a desire that her children would be successful as it is camaraderie. I don't care. I I do care when I study the scriptures to know exactly what the end will look like in terms of heaven and earth and geography and all that. I care about these things. But at the end of the day, I don't care about geography nearly as much as I care about camaraderie with the king. I want to be with Jesus where he is. I want to be close to him. I want to be at his right. I want to be at his left. And Paul tells me in Ephesians 2 that I am seated with him in heavenly places right now. And I love that promise. The, the right and left hand are, 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 are places that suggest proximity and, and prestige and power. And as I told you earlier, the promise of, 19, of Matthew 19.28 forms, I think, the background of her request. The thrones are already assured. The only question is precedence. How is it going to work out? And and, and Jesus replies to her request by addressing James and John. He looks them in the eyes. I think this is one of the beautiful depths within this passage we miss. He hears her request. He tells her she doesn't know what she's praying. And then looks at them and says, You will indeed drink my cup. And you will indeed be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Both James and John, if you know their stories had to ultimately be baptized in suffering as Jesus was. But their cups and their baptisms were different from his. James, if you don't know this, was the first martyr among the apostles. He was the first to die. And John was the only apostle to not die through martyrdom, though not because he didn't try. James had to be ready to be the first to die among the disciples, and John had to be ready to live the longest life with the longest testimony among them. You know, there was an old Roman coin that was once found with a picture of an ox on it, and the ox was facing two things. An ox, you know, an ox that was used, you know what oxes were used for in ancient Israel? Plowing and sacrifice. And so there was a coin that was found with an ox on it, and the ox was facing two things, an altar and a plow. And the inscription read, ready for either. And I believe that's at the heart of the request of Mrs. Zebedee for her sons. I present to you, my Lord, these two sons who are ready for either, for the plow or the altar. It's a pretty good example of the word baptism having a different sense than what we typically think of 
It has the sense of immersion or being completely swallowed up in something. And that's what Jesus is saying. You will be completely immersed in my life, but not in a way that you had to understand. And I think it's at least possible that Mrs. Zebedee had revelation of what the future held for her two sons, the altar or the plow. Make them ready for either, Lord. Remember the story I told you earlier, the lady who wrote this story about God creating the woman and saying that he was really close as he was creating a mother to creating something very much like himself. I suppose to me, that's why today is very special. And can I just pause and say that if your mother is here in the room, will you please today hug her and tell her you love her? (laughs) You can do it now. You can do it throughout the day. If you're a 12-year-old boy, or if, you're, if, or if you have a 12-year-old boy, um, go get him today and just hug him. And, 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 and if, if you can, kids, hug your mom today and look her in the eyes and tell her, I love you. I thank you for, what, what did that mug say? Thank you, mom. I am awesome. Good job, mom. I'm awesome. You guys aren't there yet, but you're on your way. I'm kidding. No, you're there. You guys are awesome. You're awesome. But I really do think that at the heart of it, that's why today's special, because I think we do recognize that in the totality of God's love for creation, for his people, that we need both moms and dads. This is, this is the reason God orders it this way in the very beginning, that you know, moms and dads together express the heart of God, the totality of this. And I think when we recognize that a mother's love may very well be the closest example we have to God's love in a deep way. It's a, it's a love that, that goes through the valley of the shadow of death to bring life into being. Brian, come on up, because I'm, I'm, I'm finishing. Mother's love is a love that is willing to go through the valley of the shadow of death to bring life into being. I mean, I've seen this four times in a delivery room where I can't understand or fathom the depth of pain and, and burden. That, that, that my wife went through to bring our children into the world. I tell people, if, you're, if you don't believe in God, the one place I'd bring you, well, two places, I'd bring you on the ocean on a beautiful day, or I'd bring you into a delivery room and let you see a mother give birth, and you explain that to me. There's a story told, it's a true story out of World War II in the Holocaust, Uh, that took the lives of millions of a man by the name of Solomon Rosenberg and his family. It's a true story. Solomon Rosenberg and his wife and their two sons and his mother and father. So Solomon, his wife, two sons, mother and father, six of them and their family were arrested together and placed together in in a concentration camp. If you know anything about the labor camps that were, that were uh, early on labor camps, the rules were very simple in the labor camps. As long as you can do your work, you are permitted to live. And when you become too weak to do your work, you are exterminated. That was the nature of those labor camps. Rosenberg, as the most, uh, his mother and father were old, his children were young. He felt that he had this great burden to protect his family. 
and he would watch every day his mother and father um, would go off to labor, knowing that a day would soon come, and sure enough, it did when he saw them march off to their deaths. And he knew that the next in his family would be his youngest son, David, because David had always been frail. And every day, Rosenberg would go off to work praying that his son would make it through the day. And every evening, he would come back to the barracks after hours of labor, and he would search for the faces of his family, and we'd get them all together. They would gather together and pray. They would huddle together, embrace one another. They would thank God for just one more day of life. One day, Rosenberg comes back and he doesn't see all those familiar faces and he finally finds his oldest son, Joshua, over in a corner huddled and he's weeping and he's praying and he says, Joshua, tell me it's not true. And Joshua turned and said, it's true, Papa. Today, David was not strong enough to do his work and so they came for him. But where's your mother? Papa, he said, when they came for David, he was afraid and he cried. And Mama said, there is nothing to be afraid of, David. And she took his hand and went with him. That's motherhood. (laughs) Moms, this is your day, and I pray that God will bless you in it. And and I pray that if there is someone here who has never experienced the love of God that is so close to the love of a mother that this will be a time of decision for you that you would say, if that's out there, I need it. If there's a God who loves me perfectly like that, then I need him. And I particularly pray that if you felt, you've been made to feel that you have to walk through the valley alone, that you would recognize that there, that there is a hand that reaches out to you and says, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'll go with you. And I pray even more so that you would recognize that there is one whose name is Jesus who's already gone through the valley of the shadow of death for you and has made it possible for you to live forever. He extends a, a loving invitation. In fact, when I pray, when I close my eyes and I pray and I see, and I've seen this many times as I've prayed for churches that I've pastored here in particular, I close my eyes and I see two images. When I pray every week, I see an image of a Thanksgiving meal that we're gathered around the table, that we come into this place together to give thanks. But the other image I see is I see an image of the Lord himself standing at the door and calling out, an invitation that's the same way that reminds me of my mother when as a child would open the door and call us in for supper. I love the sound of her voice when she would say, supper's ready, come on in. And the Lord himself is calling for you in that same way and I pray you'll hear his voice. And so, I'm going to ask a couple of things. If you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask a couple other things. I'm going to, I'm going to pray in a second that I'm going to kneel at the altar and you're, I invite you to come and to join me. The Lord himself can meet you here and do business. But I also 
want to create a, a, a place for you, for some of you who might just need a blessing today. And so, Betty Jean, would you come up? Would you come? And would you stand right here front and center? And would you face these fine people? You can just face them. Turn around this way. This woman right here is perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of motherhood that I see every Sunday. And you might just need a hug. And I don't want you to be up here alone. Um, Marlena, would you come up here? I don't know why the Lord just told me to pick you out. Would you come stand up here? Carol, would you? I want you to come up here. Linda, would you come up here? Betty, would you come up here? Ann, would you come up here? And Meredith, would you come up here? I could call a bunch more people up, but I just feel like there's a there's a picture. Here's a picture. I'm going to kneel and pray, but if you just want a blessing, you come up and these women will just hug on you and maybe put a hand on you and just say, bless you, child. Really, I could call all the mothers up, but I don't, this is enough for now. And so, Jesus... I thank you for these mothers of Zebedee that stand up here and many others who are in our congregation who are willing to labor, to travail in, like in the pains of childbirth to see you, Lord, formed in us. We ask, Jesus, that you would release something deep of your love, a deep revelation of your love through the love of a mother. In Jesus' name, you come forward if you feel led.